I want to take a quick minute and point out to you all and just share with you that our praise team is amazing, okay? Um, and I'm not, not trying to embarrass any one of them. As a, as a team, they do a lot of good stuff, and they do a lot of behind-the-scenes things that you guys have no idea about. And one of them I'm going to share with you because I think it's, it's kind of cool. Coming into this series, we're doing this series on um, God's game plan. Last week, we talked about, are you on God's team? What position you're going to be in God's team? Where you're going to be? And so I said to him, I said, hey, I really like that painting we have in the back that's got all the people in it. And, you know, it kind of shows the team and, and we're all worshiping and, and we're doing all this together. And if you look real close, you can probably see yourself in there. And so they, they brought that painting out. But the cool thing is today, <clears throat> I'm talking about, again, God's game plan but it's, my focal point is get your head in the game. And in order to get your head in the game, what you have to do, or part of the, the focal point today, is, is restoration. Because we get, we get kind of, we start out here in the team, but then we have one of those weeks where we're a little wore out and, and Satan starts to separate us off. And so in order to get back on the team, we need this time of restoration. And I walked in here this morning, and here's this painting in the back of this guy reaching up. And I was like, they don't even know what I have written down yet. But in two pictures, there's the sermon so we can pray. And we, no, I'm kidding. If everybody gets baptized, we can, we'll, we'll leave now. All right. But, but see, I was just like, wow, look at that. I was like, I just walked in. I was like, they're so awesome. They don't even know it. That uh, this was kind of the focal point. I'm excited about that because we were talking about God's game plan. Get your head in the game. I'm going to share with you about someone uh, from the Old Testament. His name is Joash. And I want to give you a little background on that before I get into it. Joash took the throne when he was like seven years old, okay? And we're going to bounce around between Kings and Chronicles. They're in the Old Testament. It's the first part of your Bible, and you need to look at these stories today as we look at what Joash did. Um, they're kind of out of order, all right? The kings were, were, were written about what the kings did, and then there were the first and second Chronicles, which kind of came back around, and it was like the prequel to some of those kings. So, as I go back and forth, I don't want you to think, well, that can't be the same king. He's out of order because he's reading from Second Kings and it already read about something in Chronicles. So it kind of bounces back and forth. You need to understand that. I haven't lost my mind. It's how the word was written, and I just want to share it with you that way. But we are, our focal point, like I said, is get your head in the game. And it all started in June of 1995. After years of planning and research costing multiple billions of dollars, the space shuttle Discovery was scheduled to launch for the first of seven missions. It would rendezvous with the Russian space station Mir, and in preparation for the launch of the International Space Station, which would happen in 1997, the date had been carefully chosen. The weather conditions were favorable, but strange noises were coming from launch pad 39B. Upon investigation, the technicians discovered about six dozen holes and the insulation covering the main external fuel tank of the shuttle. All of this complex planning, high-priced preparation, was now useless as the mission ground to a halt because a family of woodpeckers decided that the space shuttle looked like a good place to live. <laughs> True story. Now, you may be wondering, what in the world do woodpeckers and the space shuttle have to do with God's game plan and Joe Ash and getting your head in the game and restoration Stay with me because we're going on a ride through the Old Testament this morning and we're going to look at this King Joash who also found himself grounded, so to speak, 
due to woodpeckers, all right? It all comes together, I promise. The story of Joash is actually kind of fascinating. It, his reign was filled with promise. There was this steady decline in the kingdom from the time of David, and, and just it seemed like everything was just kind of going downhill. And then all of a sudden, this coup takes place, and it was bloody, and it was nasty. And I don't know if you're ever familiar with royalty coups, but when they go down, it's ugly. And here in the Bible, uh, on, on the death of her son, the king, uh, Joash's grandmother... And I hate to say this because it really kind of puts a bad taste in my mouth for grandmothers because grandmothers ought not to act like this. His grandmother killed all of the royal family, all the babies, all the royal family. She had them all killed and put herself on the throne and said, I'm taking over. Y'all been messing up. But Joash, his great aunt, snuck him as an infant, as a baby, snuck him out with his nurse and they hid him for six years in a secret place in the temple of God. And, and he was raised by his nurse and a priest. And when Joash was seven years old, the priest, Jehoiada, say that name with me, by the way, Jehoiada. Yeah, Jehoiada. It's important. This all comes, I'm telling you, this all comes back in the end and it's just crazy. He staged an uprising against this idolatrous grandmother of Joash and, and placed the boy on his rightful throne at seven years old. And then the cool thing is that he has the temple of Baal that's in the city is now destroyed. The priest of Baal was put to death. The covenant was reestablished and proper temple worship was reestablished and began again. It looked as if another golden age for God's people was coming into the kingdom of Judah. It looked like revival was coming. It looked like restoration was finally happening. It looked like the God's people had their head in the game finally and were beginning to play by God's game plan again. The plans had been laid. The process had begun. But then something went wrong. You could say woodpeckers were discovered in the fuel tank of the restoration. See, the question for us this morning is why? Why did such a perfect opportunity for restoration slip away? What kept God from pouring out his blessing? What did Joash do wrong? The reason these questions are important to me this morning is I believe we're in a time that in many ways is similar to the beginning of Joash's reign. And folks, we need to get our head in the game. It's, we are in a time that looks like we could be on the brink of restoration. Society for us has experienced a moral decline. I think we can agree with that. Terrible things have happened, but I think there are positive signs. There are signs that people are growing discontent with status quo. Here in just a few days will be September 11th. Some of you remember that date. Some of you weren't born before that date, and you have no idea what, I mean, you know what took place because we see it in the news, but after the tragedy of 9-11, there was a great spiritual hunger throughout America. Churches talked about how they just, like, small churches became medium-sized churches overnight. Churches of 100 were now churches of three to 400. People just showed up, pray with me. There were just all these stories of revival and restoration were happening. People cried out for it. But sadly, that desire for restoration didn't really last. And so, so we're back in this place. And I think it's important for us to look at the lesson of, Josiah, of Joash through the lens of restoration that didn't quite get there so that we can see the traps and avoid them. We can get our heads in the game and we can make sure that we are a part of God's game plan. You see, in the story of Joash, four things seem to stand out as roadblocks to this. And the first one is what I call a follow the leader faith. 2 Chronicles 24.2 tells us this. It says, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord 
all the days of, say his name, Jehoiada the priest. Leave that up for a second. Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Joash did this because earlier in the story, 2 Chronicles 23, 16, Jehoiada um, made a covenant. And between himself and the Lord and all the people that the king, that they would be the Lord's people. So there it is. Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they would be the Lord's people. Well, you think, well, look, they're off to a good start. And you're not wrong. But here's that follow the leader faith. By the way, I understand Joash is only like seven years old and that Jehoiada made the covenant. That's what you need to understand. Okay? And Joash followed him, which for a seven-year-old king... That's good. Listen up here. Second Chronicles 24, 17 through 16 says this. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king and the king listened to them. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their guilt. You see what I mean by that follow the leader faith? You know, as long as Jehoiada was around to, to guide him and, and to kind of give him those bumpers, like when you're, you know, you go bowling and you're not very good and they put those little bumpers in, that's kind of how Joash grew up as king. Jehoiada was there to kind of keep him in line, if you will, and to guide him. And Joash did okay. Not perfect, but okay. But it seems there's still a little bit of conviction in him because when you look back at Jehoiada's covenant, the reality is it wasn't possible for him to make a covenant on behalf of the king. He could only make a covenant on behalf of himself. You see, the king needed to dedicate himself to the Lord. But when I read about Joash and I read through all this, I don't really see anywhere and I don't believe that Joash did that. Because then, as soon as Jehoiada has died, Joash is now easily led astray by those who wanted to turn him against the Lord. By people that wanted to reinstate idol worship, to mix it in with the worship of the one true God. And Joash was a follower and it can be okay as long as you're a follower with conviction. But Joash seemed to be a follower primarily because he had no conviction. He kind of, it's that whole thing. If you have no direction and no plan, you're not going to get anywhere. The same danger exists for us today. It's tempting to follow the crowd or even to follow a charismatic leader. But it's dangerous, even if that leader is a good one. You need to get your head in the game and have a personal relationship with the Lord. And, and it's your, if your commitment is leader-based... It's easy to be led astray. It's easy to be turned around by some other leader. And it's dangerous because people will let you down. Leaders will let you down. You may find this as a surprise, but there's a good chance that I will let you down at some point. Don't ask my family because I never let them down ever at home. But we will. Your elders will let you down at some point. Wives, your husbands will let you down. Husbands, your wives will let you down. Young people, kids, teenagers, your parents will let you down. College folks. <laughs> Thank you. College folks, your, you know, your professors, they're going to let you down. It, it just kind of happens. And I think the story of Joash is a good reminder for us that follow the leader faith is a roadblock to our own spiritual growth. It's a roadblock to each individual following God's game plan. Yes, I'm here and I'm going to preach every Sunday. I'm going to tell you good things from God's word. But heaven forbid, if I die in a car wreck today, I hope none of you leave here just because my big mouth is not up here on a microphone. Come back next Sunday 
and let's keep moving. It's not about me. Joash missed that. He did what Jehoiada said. He, he took his direction as long as he was alive. But as soon as he passed, he just fell in with other leaders who, who bumped him around in a totally different direction. The second roadblock that we have is neglecting the strongholds. And you're probably thinking, what in the world does that have to do with anything? In 2 Kings 14, 1 through 4, we read this. In the second year of Joash, son of Jeho- Jeho- Joahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. That was like a Dr. Seuss novel right there. <laughs> he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoiada of Jerusalem. This all, uh, there's a point to this. He did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did according to all that Joash his father had done. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now, why does that matter to us? You may be thinking about that. That's long ago, and I'm going to explain a few things to you. We have to understand that the high places were centers of idol worship in the towns. Okay, On mountains, on hilltops, often poles to the goddess Asherah were, were set up. Altars similar to the ones in the temple were set up for animal sacrifice and even for human sacrifice. Okay, Those were the high places that they're referring to. The high places are not something that are dedicated to our God in that time. But they weren't in the cities, and the pagan priests who operated these franchises were very political, very powerful men. And so it sounds like once Joash reached an age where he could have been aware and he could have done something about it, he simply wasn't willing to make the effort. Remember this, idol worship had become more prevalent than genuine worship. That also seems to be happening in our world. The stories in the books of Kings and Chronicles make it clear that many of the kings like to play both ends of the field, if you will. A lot of the kings would keep a pagan god on the side just in case the God of Israel didn't come through in a tight spot. When you look back at the kings and you look back at what they allowed in their homes, uh, because maybe because of their wives or their harems, they would allow these other gods to be in their homes. These other idols were worshipped. And the question I have for you is, do we have places hidden in the hills of our lives, places in your life where God is not sovereign? Maybe it's those habits, those practicing sins, inappropriate relationships, temptations we indulge in. Maybe it's the plans we've made for our lives that we don't want the Lord messing with. Maybe it's that, that one thing we've got set up just in case God doesn't come through. But what about your dignity? What about your reputation? Are you willing for those to be brought low? Are you ready to surrender every corner of your life to God's sovereignty? Are you hanging on to some of those high places from your past? And there's a story I heard about a child who, who came to school. Every day he came to school filthy, just just dirty. Like you could see the grime on him. You could, you could see the grime in his hair. Obviously there was odor. He smelled. And the teachers were appalled that anyone could let their child come to school that way. And, and one day they were discussing the situation. And one teacher said, that mother just clearly doesn't love her child. And another teacher replied, no, I think she loves her child. She just doesn't hate the dirt. You see, we may say we love the Lord, but until we hate the dirt, until we tear down the high places in our lives, until we reach up to Him for restoration, we won't be all in with His game plan for our lives. The next roadblock to, to really getting into God's game plan is that we should never, or excuse me, is, is, um, is something that should never be surrendered. 
we look at 2 Kings 12, 17-18, we see a surrender of the sacred things. This story will break your heart. Then Hazal, king of Aaron, went up and fought against Gath and captured it. And then Hazal set his face to go up to Jerusalem. Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his father's kings of Judah, had dedicated and his own sacred things and all the gold that was found among the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house. He took all that and sent them to Hazal, king of Aram. Then he went away from Jerusalem. Just so you know, Jehoash is another name for Joash. Okay, so we're still talking about our friend here. When faced with a crisis, Joash doesn't turn to the Lord. He doesn't call upon the Lord. He doesn't call upon the nation to fast and pray. He doesn't seek wisdom from God. Instead, he surrenders the sacred objects from the temple. He surrenders the sacred things that have been dedicated to the Lord hundreds of years ago. And he's thinking for his own safety, he's going to give these things away. And he uses them as a bribe to get his enemy and the enemy of the Lord to leave him alone. This is another example of Joash's weakness and a lack of resolve. But what about us? When push comes to shove in your life, what gives way? Do you give up the things that are sacred to the Lord? When the budget is tight, what gets cut? Yeah, usually it's the offering. I want to tell you something. I didn't ask my wife permission to do this, so I might get in trouble. But it's okay because she loves me. She knows I say things I shouldn't sometimes. In February, with our insurance, Dylan's diabetes supplies went up 40%. That's his insulin, his pods. Everything we buy for him went up 40%. And I'm saying this because my wife is amazing because I'm not trusted with money and sharp objects in our house. I'm severely dyslexic. I don't do the budget. And and frankly, I don't worry about it because she worries enough for both of us. But that went up 40%, all right? And still, the first thing she does when she sits down and goes through our stuff is she writes out the checks that we're going to give in our offering. And, and I'm, I'm excited about that because no matter what happens in our bank account, my wife is faithful. And I mean, we talk about that and, we know, and I know what, what we're giving and I know what's going on there. I'm not aloof in the whole thing. I just don't get to pay the electric bill because I'd forget and, and we'd be in the dark. But I'm excited about that because she writes them out and then she sets them on the dresser and they're done. And then there's no turning back from that. And the cool thing about it is no matter what goes on in our life, a 40% increase, me taking another field trip to the hospital, because I tend to do that every six or eight months, no matter what it is, I believe because of that faithfulness, God's math works out in our budget. All right. And, and so I just, hopefully I, it's an encouragement to you guys. But listen, when the budget gets tight, don't cut from God. If you've got to turn your cell phone off for a month, do that. You'll find a lot more peace. <laughs> if you've got to let the cable go, listen, I want to tell you, if you want to have some fun, you call the cable company. I don't care who your provider is. And you tell them, hey, I've got to let you go. And they go, well, why would you do that? Well, because we had an increase in something else in our budget and I'm going to give my money to the Lord first, and I just I got to let you go. I promise you, after 30 to 45 minutes on the phone, 
somebody will say to you, you know what? We're going to let you have free cable for the next four months, the next six months. They're going to do that because they don't want to lose you. I'm I'm telling you the truth. Call them and tell them. I got to give my money to Jesus. They're going to try to compete with that. They will. When the budget is tight, don't cut God out of your budget. All right? When something really neat is happening on Sunday morning, don't cut God out of your budget. We have, if you have cable, you have a DVR. You can watch that game 30 minutes later. It'll, be, it'll still be playing. Don't cut God out. When your daily schedule is tight, does the laundry wait or does the Lord wait? At home, don't cut God out. I'll wear the same pants another day. I don't care. I heard some of the guys are like, Amen. <laughs> Hey, fashion fact, you're not supposed to wash jeans anyways. That's a true story. You're not supposed to wash jeans. They're made to be worn and worn. Don't cut God out. It's just laundry. Listen, if you got kids and you're like, oh, I got to get this done, I got to get this done. No, you need to sit down and encourage your kids in the Lord. Because when they get old, they're not going to remember that there was a pile of laundry. They're going to remember that there was love in the house. They're going to remember that you said, sure, your friends can come over. Ah, we'll clean it up later. They, they don't care. Don't you shake your head no at me. I'm speaking the truth. <laughs> I grew up in a trailer, but my friends came over all the time. There was eight of us sitting around on beat up couches. You know, and it was like, that's what we remember. My buddy Scott calls again. I remember hanging out at your dad's house. You know, it, they don't care what it looks like. They don't care if there's a pile of laundry. All they care about is some Doritos and some Tostitos or whatever. That's, don't cut God out, okay? Same thing, college guys. You, those of you who are in college, if you don't know it by the day before the test, staying up all night and grinding yourself away and wearing yourself out isn't going to help you do better on the test. I'm telling you, y'all, don't you know me? I was in college for seven years. That makes me a professional, I'm telling you. <laughs> If you don't know it by the night before, you pray, Lord, help me remember what I know, and you go to bed, and the next day, no matter what happens on that test, you're refreshed, you're able to go about what the Lord's called you to do, and it'll all work out in the end, because all you need is a C to get the diploma anyway. (laughs) Nobody cares. When your daily schedule gets tight, don't cut God out of it. It's his game plan. Listen, Bill Gates, founder and CEO of Microsoft, said this in an interview he said, just in terms of allocation of time, uh, or just in terms of allocation of time resource, religion is not very efficient. He said, there's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. And you're going to learn more about that next week because let me tell you something. When you're on God's team, it costs you something. And Bill Gates is absolutely right. In the terms of allocation of time resource, religion is not very efficient. Because it requires us to do something. And a lot of times we're doing something for people that sometimes we may never meet. Man, that's sad. He's got a lot of resource. He could do a lot of stuff and a lot of good things. Now, don't hear this as some kind of legalism that says you have to do your time to be right with the Lord. That's not God's game plan. But if we're earnestly seeking a deeper walk with the Lord, if we're hungry for restoration in our nation, if we want to follow God's game plan, then it's time for us to get our heads in the game. We can't have a mindset like Bill Gates. 
That includes all of our resources, includes all of our time, our talent, our treasure. They must belong, first of all, to God. If we surrender the sacred for the sake of convenience, we shouldn't expect to understand God's game plan. When you give up the, 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 the sacred things from the temple of your life, because it's easier, you will not understand God's game plan. But it's clear our head and our hearts are not in the game when we're willing to give up those sacred things, those times with God. The last roadblock, number four, comes from Second Chronicles 24, 19-22. And it's ignoring the call to repentance. And when I read this, I want you to look at me. I want you to look at this guy up here on this painting. I'm going to move out of the way. Yeah, he sent prophets to them. Them is Joash and his, his people. He sent prophets to them back and to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of, say that name, Jehoiada. Does everybody remember who Jehoiada is? All right, Jehoiada is the priest that raised Joash. All right, this, again, breaks my heart. The, son, the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people. And he said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord. He has also forsaken you. All right, Zechariah just put it on him. So they conspired against him. And at the command of the king, who's the king? Joash. They stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus, Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Zechariah's father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son. And, he, and as he died, he said, and this is Zechariah, he said to Joash and everyone that was there, may the Lord see and avenge. Man. The guy who hid him and raised him really his whole life until he died. Joash repaid that by murdering his son who came to him with a message from the Lord. And even after Joash had strayed from the path that the Lord had marked out for him, God in his mercy sent Zechariah to warn him, to invite him back, to play on God's team. He was like, just turn around. Just come back. Come play on God's team. Get your head in the game. And he says, get your head in the game. But Joash didn't want to hear that. He didn't want to hear that what he was doing wrong was wrong. And so he killed the messenger. In case you missed it, the messenger, again, was the son of Jehoiada the priest that saved Joash's life and raised him in the Lord. I believe God wants all of us to be on his team. I think that's always been God's will. But I also believe that unless we as individual Christians and we as a community of Christians don't get our heads in the game, don't heed the call to repentance, to restoration, we will never experience all that God has for those that live according to his game plan. Not, not because God has established a quid pro quo system where if you act right, I'll bless you, but simply because the blessing of God and intimacy with him are incompatible with an unrepentant life. If you're living an unrepentant life, you cannot expect to be blessed by God. You cannot expect intimacy with God if you're living an unrepentant life, whatever it is that you're unrepentant about. As we come to our response time, I'm going to tell you what else I believe. I believe that the Holy Spirit has been working in His convicting power at Huntsville Christian Church for a good while now. 
Uh, even as I've been speaking this morning, I believe that people all over this place, including me, and perhaps everybody in here has felt the heavy hand of God on them at some point, convicting us of the high places that need to come down in our lives. I don't know what's on your Asherah pole. I don't know what's up on that hill that you go back to, but I believe that the Holy Spirit is trying to convict us to remember the sacred things that have been surrendered in our lives that need to be reclaimed for our Lord. I don't know what you've surrendered for the, for the sake of ease or for something, for comfort or whatever it is, but we need to reclaim the sacred things that God has given us. You can choose to ignore God's call to repentance. You can choose to ignore God's call for restoration. You can continue life as usual, sitting on the bench, so to speak. Hey, Joash, you can even choose to kill the messenger, metaphorically speaking, please, <laughs> by, by simply choosing not to listen or to never come back here again. You can choose that. Or you can choose to surrender right here. You can choose to surrender at the foot of the cross. I believe with all my heart that the Lord is willing and anxious to move in his restoration power throughout this whole place. In your life, in your family, in our community, in this church, in our nation. I believe that. His plans are made. The shuttle is on the launch pad. But there are woodpeckers in your life that we need to deal with. That you need to deal with. And the way we deal with them is repentance. Restoration, genuine sorrow for sin. Sorrow so genuine that we actually change our behavior. We talk about repentance all the time, but it's a churchy word. I'm going to break it down real quick. We need to repent, which means we need to change our behavior. You know whatever that behavior is in your life that you need to change in order to play according to God's game plan. In order to get your head in the game, we need to change that. With a sorrow so genuine that we actually change our behavior. And whatever that looks like for you this morning, will you stand and sing our response song and respond to God's word accordingly? It's been great to be here with you all this morning and to, to worship with you, to challenge you with God's word. And now that I've done my part, it's time for you to do your part. It's time for you to go to win and commit to grow. And as you go, you need to decide this week, will you allow the woodpeckers to destroy your faith? Will you live like Joash and allow the high places to stay in your life and trade the sacred for comfort here on earth? Or will you live like Jehoiada and make a promise to the Lord that you will live according to his game plan and play on his team no matter what? Will you sing this last song with us? <laughs>